to Linux Action News, our weekly take on the free and open source world. This is episode one, recorded May 14th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hey, Joe, happy Mother's Day. Oh, yeah. It's Mother's Day in America, not in England, though. No, but I, I just felt like I should I should just wish you a happy Mother's Day for our first episode. <laughs> Fair enough. We have so many interesting stories this week, we couldn't have picked a better week to start. And I think maybe what might be one of our largest stories for a while is what's happening at Canonical. And this week, Mark Shuttleworth, in an interview at OpenStack Summit, talked about Canonical's path to an IPO. And this could be a massive shift for Canonical, Joe. Well, this already is that we've seen it over the last few weeks, haven't we? And and as you say, this is the perfect time to start the show because this is, I would say, probably the biggest story in Linux for five years, maybe longer than that. You know, Joe, I think I think people don't realize how big of a story this is yet uh, because things are still transitioning. Uh, there's there's some things that are still happening that haven't fully clicked into place yet, and it's going to be a massive shift for this company, a massive shift for the Linux desktop. And if Canonical goes for the IPO, that means a big shift in what the company focuses on. It's going to be less altruistic type things and more does this make a profit type things. Well, yeah, this whole idea that they were this family, it wasn't a proper company, was it? It was this kind of super happy, fun time, FOSS family that was, you know, made a few pounds here and there but wasn't too bothered about it and was interested in software freedom whereas now it seems like shotworth has just realized that he's not going to make money from the desktop the desktop is not going to be a success financially and he's just decided to cash out by the sounds of things i don't i don't know if i don't know if that's true i i actually would i would actually disagree with you just to to, to a bit i think it's ironically the desktop's probably making canonical more revenue right now than it ever has based on my conversations with mr barton george at dell they're seeing a hundred percent year over year growth on those desktops and to the point where in india and china half the machines sold are running ubuntu it's, and here's the thing, Joe, I don't know any of the details, but according to Barton, every single one of those machines has a support contract paid by Dell to Canonical. Right. So there is revenue coming in there. So therefore, you have to ask yourself, why are they abandoning Unity? Okay, you can see why they abandoned Unity 8 and Convergence, because that wasn't making them any money. But Unity 7 on the desktop is making the money. So why are they making the shift to Gnome? I think it's pretty clear that there was a realization at the upper levels of Canonical that they weren't going to change anyone's mind. I think that's an exasperation we're seeing. It's an exasperation. All right, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to disengage and just make let this make money. In fact, Joe, in some ways, it's, it's parallel to what Apple is doing with the Macs. They're just sitting there and milking an existing market while they focus on the things that make money iOS, iPhone, services, things like that. Canonical is going to do the same thing. They're going to ship a desktop. And they may even invest some time in engineering into it, but it's not going to be their own whole creation like it was in the past. Instead, they're going to spend their time innovating on things like snap packages, things that they can do to be more competitive in OpenStack space, things that they can do to be more competitive in containers in the cloud. They're going to double down on LXD. Those areas where they're making money, IoT, that's going to be what they focus on, and they're just going to sit here and bring revenue in from the desktop, and they're going to ship a no, just a vanilla GNOME desktop. That's my cynical view of it. Well, yeah, basically they're abandoning the desktop to the community. Meanwhile, they're going to still make some revenue off it by the sounds of things. And why bother to spend valuable resources on an engineering team for the desktop when Ubuntu Gnome is doing it for free for you, when you can just co-opt them? 
I mean, you talked about being cynical. I mean, how is that for cynical? <laughs> oh, geez. Jeez. Yeah. Although, did you see that before all of this uh, big news about dropping Unity and switching to GNOME came down, did you see that? I think it was Dustin Kirkland. I might be wrong on the attribution, but I'm pretty sure it was Dustin that went on Hacker News and started a thread asking the uh, – always uh, interactive folks over at hackernews.com, what they wanted from the Ubuntu desktop. And on the top of the list is just ship us a standard GNOME desktop. Did you see that? Yeah, that was interesting timing, wasn't it? That they basically just said ship GNOME and Wayland. And that's exactly what Canonical turned around and did, well, announced they were going to do about a week later. It's almost like they were putting feelers out there to see how people would react. They surely must have made the decision before that. I completely agree, but I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't just a, let's double check the temperature of the market before we make this announcement. Yeah. Yeah, maybe <laughs> they, they were checking that people weren't saying, no, we want Unity 8, finish Unity 8, get it out the door. Whereas it seems that at least with, okay, it's a very specific part of the, the desktop users, Hacker News, at least they want just standard GNOME. And well, that's what they're going to get. Well, Joe, can I float another idea past you too? Uh, so when we look at that Hacker News discussion thread, which got a ton of traction, and we look at who's buying Dell Sputnik laptops, and we look at who's buying Galago Pros, I think a large selection of them are that quote-unquote web developer, that developer who wants to run on their laptop the same environment they run in production. And that's why Bash on, on Windows doesn't work for them because it needs to be exactly what they run in production. It really does make a difference. It really makes a difference for these people. And so for them, they're buying up these Sputnik laptops like crazy and they're buy, they're looking at System System 76 machines and Entraware machines with an entirely new set of interests now. And you have to wonder if these if these manufacturers aren't coming to Canonical and saying, I need to plan the next year of products. And this Unity 8 stuff, you haven't you haven't shipped anything. Mir hasn't shipped. I mean it's shipped, but it's just been in testing. Like Unity 8 isn't ready yet. We need to plan our products. We have we have to plan things out 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 18 months in advance. And right now, we're seeing demand for the GNOME desktop. The Fedora distribution can deliver that. OpenSUSE can deliver that. Canonical, we want to work with you. But we're kind of, we're a little hesitant about your path and your future. What do you have for us? Because the reason why I say that, Joe, is I saw a lot of machines at Dell running the GNOME desktop. They weren't necessarily running Unity 7. It seems to be that there is a lot of momentum there. And so you think that that's why they have decided to finally kill Unity then? Because they... They've got this pressure from the OEM saying to them, people don't like Unity. They want just standard stuff like GNOME that you can get on all the other distros. Because one thing about Unity 7 was it wasn't very portable, was it? You kind of could run it on Arch if you really wanted to, but you couldn't run it on any of the other distros. Whereas now, if you look at what's probably going to be stock Ubuntu and stock Fedora, and the, the GNOME version of OpenSUSE, you've got a unified experience across those. Yeah, and I think a really inconvenient thing happened along the way to mobile is the desktop actually started getting some traction. <laughs> Inconveniently, while Canonical was focusing on, on building a great mobile experience, the desktop actually started making the company a significant amount of money. And so recently, 
what from what I can tell, it seems like they got really serious about Unity 8 on the desktop, but it was just too little too late. The the vendors, I believe, want something today. The, the Linux end users that are developing on Linux and deploying in the cloud, they want something today, and we're not we're not really ready to wait around. In the meantime, it's not like MacBooks and it's not like Windows 10 is sitting around. Both of them are, are getting better and they're adding features that are more appealing to this to this particular developer market. Well, you say that the desktop was starting to gain traction there. Could that be because Unity 7 was mature, it was stable, it was working fine? And okay, I've never been a fan of it, but I speak to people who are, and they say, okay, early on it was a bit ropey, didn't work too well. Whereas towards the end, now, it, in well, people who are using 16.04 are happily using it. It's very, very stable. I mean, I saw Popey saying that Gnome Shell is crashing on him. Um, it used to, Unity would crash maybe once a month, whereas he's had like two or three crashes a day with Gnome. It's funny, it's, Gnome 3 has just started crashing on me on our OBS machine that we have here in the studio in the last couple of days. I don't know why, but all of a sudden, every few hours, it, it just reloads. <laughs> so why I, the hell would you use Gnome on such critical infrastructure as your OBS machine? Surely you should be using XFC or LXDE, so it's... You know, oh, not oh, taking oh, sure, all the resources. Sure. Well, because unlike you, I try to skate to where the puck's going to be, so that way I have very informed commentary right here on the show. So I live and breathe the GNOME three desktop because let's be honest, that's where the that's where everybody's going, and I don't stay on XFCE Island like you do, Joe. I don't like XFCE. I want the real desktop. I want the current desktop. I want when I say people should try Linux, I want the experience that they're going to get, Joe. Well, yeah, that's why you could maybe use that on your laptop, but on critical infrastructure, <laughs> man, I would not be using something as heavy well, as GNOME. To tell you the truth, Joe, I can't really argue with you right now because you're <laughs> right. right? <laughs> and I, I think it's sort of a, a deep irony if you're also right about why, why maybe it's just getting successful right now is because of Unity 7. I disagree with that premise. I don't think it's Unity 7 that's making the Linux desktop take off right now for these particular web dev type customer base. Or whatever. I don't mean to categorize it as just web devs, but you have to understand that I've been talking to these companies and that's who they're focusing at and that's where they're actually seeing a lot of sales. And you know what they're doing, Joe? They're using the command line. They don't care what the UI is. They don't care if it's Unity. They don't care if it's GNOME. As long as they get a terminal, as long as they get Docker, as long as they get Git and all of the same tools, they're happy. And it, it sort of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much time and effort Canonical puts into Unity 8. It doesn't matter if they keep Unity 7 going for the next 15 years. And it doesn't really matter if they just ship stock. No, because the reality is everybody's just using the terminal. Everybody's just using Sublime Text or Atom or Visual Studio Code or Vim. And it doesn't matter. And imagine if you could have all that stuff and your games as well all the AAA title games on the same operating system. Oh, that would be super tempting. In fact, that would be so tempting if there was something like that out there, Joe. I may never switch to another operating system. Hmm, yeah. I wonder if Microsoft maybe have thought of that, eh? Yeah, this was uh, some big news from Build Conference this year. So last year, Microsoft announced the ability to run the Ubuntu environment, like a Bash shell, on Windows. Now, this year at Build 2017, they have announced they're also bringing SUSE and Fedora. And along with that, they're also putting Ubuntu, Fedora, and SUSE in the Windows Store. So it's just like an app you install now from the Windows Store. And Bob's your uncle. You've got Linux right there on your Windows box. This will be coming in the Fall Creators Update. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think what is key here is the fact that they're going to be in the Windows Store, which means that it's going to be on Windows 10 S, yeah. which is the lockdown one they're trying to sell to students uh -huh. because they realize that these students are going to need Linux. I mean, Microsoft has long since accepted 
you know, Microsoft loves Linux and all that stuff. They've long since accepted that in the cloud, Linux is has won. You know, they but they don't want to lose the desktop because that's basically what they're hanging on to. I mean, they've got Azure and everything, but the desktop and Office and you know that that's a big part of their business model, and so they don't want to lose it. And this is their way of doing that. They they're incorporating what is effectively Linux, even though it's not Linux, is it? Because there's no Linux kernel. It's everything. It's sort of all the GNU stuff and all that. And they they just want to keep people on Windows as much as possible. And you have to say it's a very smart play mm. by them. Mm. Finally, finally, I can use proper NTFS with Linux, finally. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, if I was stuck on Windows, like say I, I worked at a company that required Windows for some sort of network reason or for other reasons... I would be very thankful for this feature. And I'm very impressed that Microsoft is willing to do this. It does sort of alarm me a bit that it makes it less enticing to switch away. But I go back to it it truly makes a difference that you run you run on your test and dev machine, which you run in production. And so it's while it's cute and handy and it makes Sigwin look like a, a, a product of the past, I don't really fear this. I don't really fear this. I wish I had more. Yeah, I don't. I I tell you why, Joe. It's the problem is Windows 10. It really, it really is shit, Joe. And I'm not just saying that because I like Linux. I I have I recently tried it out again when I was testing out different video editors, and I had it on a 4K display. It's a joke, Joe. It's a real joke. It is. It is laughable. When when Apple ships a high DPI product, the entire operating system and all of the applications are high DPI because they control it all. Okay. I grok that. When Linux ships a high DPI product, some things that are GTK3 or QT5 look great in high DPI. And I understand why some things that are maybe older, like your XFCE desktop, look like total Rs. But when, when Microsoft ships a high DPI desktop, their own stuff, like their own management interface, is mixed. They have multiple control panels. They have 10 different ways to do things. They're bundling Cortana like, there's, like it's going out of style. They have, new, <laughs> they have new ways of invading your privacy. In fact, one of my favorite ones is you can turn off ad personalization, but you cannot actually turn off ads in your start menu. And when you turn off ad personalization, it warns you and it says, by the way, you will still see ads. They just won't be personalized. That kind of stuff, Joe, the reason why I mention it is because it is the little things that grate against people's nerves that does compel them to buy a machine running Linux or to try installing Linux on their machine. And so while this stuff is great, and if I was stuck in a Windows world, I absolutely would use this, and I'm, I'm impressed that Microsoft's doing it. As a Linux user, I'm a little underwhelmed. First of all, is it SUSE? Is it OpenSUSE? Is it version, yeah. is it Leap? Is it, what is it? And which version of Fedora is it? Is it Fedora 25? Is it Fedora 24? Is it Fedora Atomic? Is it Fedora Cloud based on version 24? There's no information here. And one other thing I'll just happen to say is the day that Microsoft announced Ubuntu running on Windows, there were folks at Canonical that had the entire blog post up on how all of it works, about how they packaged it up, about the testing they did, about how the performance works. So as somebody who wanted to use this in production potentially, I totally grokked how it worked, how it would work for me, and what the potential limitations are. There has been nothing from SUSE or Fedora. Why do you suppose that is then? Do they just not really care about it? If Microsoft said to them, we want to use you know, SUSE and we want to use Fedora with this um, Linux uh, Windows subsystem for Linux, and they've just said, yeah, okay, whatever, use it. And, and just they don't really give a shit about that. 
I, 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 to be honest, I can't tell because in one sense it could be good. Maybe they've modified the subsystem for Linux in such a way that any distro is possible and so they just put these distros on there. Or they did – they worked directly with these different distributions and they're just choosing not to promote it because, because maybe some of them came out and shit all over Canonical in the past when they announced this feature. I don't know if you recall that, but there were folks that came out of the woodwork and shamed Canonical for doing this. And now some of those mm. same people helped enable it for their distribution. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that the licensing would mean that you'd have to kind of do a deal, wouldn't you? I don't suppose they could just ship it in Windows. The trademarking alone, right? You would think that the trademarking alone would be enough that they'd have to work out some sort of deal. But they're saying mm. SUSE, so maybe it's SUSE Enterprise, which at that, at that point, uh, how many of you out there have SUSE Enterprise on your VPS? Raise your hand. Oh, none of you. Oh, okay. Well, how many of you have? Fed uh, oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Fedora is available for DigitalOcean, isn't it? I'm sure some people are using it. What do you think, though, of the joke I've seen passed around online now that it's truly the year of the Linux desktop because you can now run Linux on Windows? Does that sting? Well, it's kind of true, isn't it? Yeah. You've got Chromebooks and these Windows S laptops coming, and Windows 10 S, which are both basically Chromebook-type devices. Both of them running well, one actually Linux and one everything but Linux. And so it kind of is really the year of Linux on the desktop, but just not as we thought it would be. I would put it differently. I would say it's the year of the Linux runtime. It's the year of the Linux runtime. And I think that's actually part of why our show is important because Linux now runs everywhere. As a developer, you can write for Linux now and you can run it on BSD. You can run it, of course, on Linux servers, which are the predominant web servers on the web. You can run it now on Windows. You can run it in virtualization. You can run it in Docker. It's, it's truly the universal platform that doesn't have some crazy runtime around it. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's kind of amazing. It's welcome to 2017, everybody, where Microsoft is shipping Fedora, SUSE, and Ubuntu in the Windows Store. In the Windows <laughs> App Store. <laughs> Crazy. I want to take a moment and thank Ting for sponsoring this episode, our first episode of Linux Action News. And do me a favor and go to last.ting.com. It's a little retro and it's a little awesome. las.ting.com. It's a smarter way to do mobile. And if you go to that URL, you'll save some money. What I love about Ting, I've been a customer for more than two and a half years, is just pay for what you use wireless. And when I say this, it sounds like, oh, geez, Chris, that's a really neat idea. There must be a trick. And, when, and to some people, those would be people that live in the United States. And then there's a group of people, like a lot of you outside the United States, that go, well, isn't that kind of how, um, that's how my mobile works, Chris. You see, yeah. if, if, the, if the U.S. were to hit reset on the mobile market today, the Ting model would be the dominant model because it truly empowers the customer. If you've got Wi-Fi, there's no sense in paying for gigs and gigs and gigs and gigs of data. There's no reason to use that if you only need your data when you're driving from home to work or something like that. Same with calls. Now that Telegram has calling, I'm never making a phone call again. Now that the Echo has calling, I'm never making a phone call again. So why pay for minutes? You think I'm kidding. I'm not. Find out more by going to last.ting.com. They got a brand new website that looks super slick. It's pay for what you use wireless. And one of the other things that's cool, and I, I mentioned this because we kind of have, you'd be surprised. We kind of have a geeky audience. I know, I know. I wouldn't have thought so either. But it turns out we do. And so they understand that there's CDMA and GSM. At least here in the States, we got both of them. We're maniacs like that. And on, t on the Ting network, you can choose either one that's better in your area. Maybe one's better for calls. Maybe one's better for data. Or maybe one just makes you feel like a baller. Find out more by going to last.ting.com. They got a bunch of great features, a great dashboard, and more. But I want you to take this away. It's $6 for the line. And then just your usage on top of that. 
last.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action News. Just a quick headline for you guys this week. The OpenWRT and the LEED, or L-E-D-E, project have agreed on a peace plan. I didn't realize that there was a split happening here, but I guess a set of core developers went off and started their own project from OpenWRT. Oh, so you didn't know about this either. I kind of felt a bit stupid reading about this. I, th- I should have known about it. No, I did not. And I guess things have actually worked out for the better. Some of the core developers are coming back. They're going to use the LEDE project as sort of the base, but they're going to keep the OpenWRT branding. It's sort of a kumbaya, Joe. So uh, look forward to better firmwares on your Edge devices soon. Speaking of Edge devices, Google in Android O is finally going to solve a major issue with Android. But I suppose, Joe, the question is, does it go far enough? No. In a word, it solves one of three problems, doesn't it? With yeah. the, the whole updating Android situation, where first of all, you have to deal with the silicon manufacturers. So usually Samsung or Qualcomm. So you have to deal with them first. Then you have to deal with the actual phone manufacturers. And then you have to deal with the carriers. So you've got these three steps that have to be um, dealt with before you can push out uh, an over the air update. And so Project Treble is going to make that a little bit easier because it's basically separating the first layer of that off. So the code coming from the silicon manufacturers can stay the same and then everything on top of that can change. Another way to frame that would be now the silicon manufacturers don't have to be bothered before everybody else in the stack can do an Android update. Well, yeah. Which is good. It's definitely a step forward. There's yeah. no doubt about it. One of the things I didn't realize was such an issue, but apparently it's a big issue in the Android ecosystem, is Qualcomm only certifies updating their chips, the drivers for it and firmwares and whatnot, for two years. Two years. And then, sorry, we're all done. Well, that, that two-year cycle is basically the, the standard cycle in mobile, isn't it? Because after two years, you've upgraded your phone, in theory. In theory. Meanwhile, iOS devices... See, here's why I disagree with that. I disagree with that because... They get passed down, like especially in families. You pass your devices down. They become gaming devices. They're still on the network. They still have your personal information on them. In some cases, now they're used by children. So that's why iOS devices with a five-year support cycle are much better for families where they have where they want to do a pass down thing. Yeah, and if you just want to buy, I mean buying an iPhone is an expensive endeavor and buying yes. a Pixel phone is an expensive endeavor. Right. If you buy it outright and not right. through your carrier, right? And so you you want to make that investment work. You you want to be able to um you know use it for several years, not just like two years or or even less than that if you've only bought it like halfway through the cycle. Right. And the Pixel is one of the first devices. In fact, if you already have the Android O developer preview, you're, you already have this in theory. Also, I think it's worth mentioning, this doesn't solve the carrier problem or the OEM problem, which I think is the core problem. If the OEMs like Samsung or LG or HTC were truly motivated to support these devices for longer, something tells me that that would be worked into their contract with Qualcomm. They would be, pr- they would be pressuring the devices manufacturers. They would be working on the software stack. There's been no motivation at the hardware manufacturer layer for the entire time of Android, which is a core problem because they want you to buy new devices. Same at the carrier level. Here, at least in the States, it's within their best interest for you to buy new devices. They're all the carriers now are offering plans where you just pay a monthly price. Lease that phone, friend. Lease that phone. And every 18 months, you get a brand new phone. Just keep upgrading, my friend. And then we can push you new services, new network features, 
all kinds of upsell services that make them lots of money and help them brand the device. So it's in everybody's interest to have you buy new devices. Yeah. And can I point out a potential problem here? It's only a potential problem, but if you are leaving the code from the silicon manufacturers there untouched, well, that doesn't necessarily help you in terms of security because what if there are zero days or whatever found in that code and if Qualcomm have decided that they're not supporting it anymore, then yeah, okay, you can go and upgrade the the Android stack and make that more secure. But if the fundamental code running the silicon has got vulnerabilities that are not being patched, then this doesn't help that either. I would say stay tuned. Another shoe could drop at Google I.O. on May 17th. May 17th through the 19th is Google I.O. So it's coming up very soon. This is sort of like a pre-announcement. And we could hear other parts that make it all click at Google I.O. So that has to be kept in mind. But right now, this is only step one in a three-step process. And it's in some sense, Joe, it really doesn't make any sense unless you consider where Google may be going with things like Project Fuchsia. Yeah, exactly. So Project Fuchsia is their backup plan, I suppose, their mobile backup plan, which is a completely different OS. It doesn't use Linux. It it doesn't have the Java virtual machine. It doesn't have all of the baggage of Android. Right. It's licensed under BSD Clause 3, MIT, and Apache 2.0. No, no GPL. Exactly, right? Which is something that Google, I mean, they've never been a huge fan of the GPL. Let's, uh, let's face it. So the OS is called Fuchsia. And the kernel is called Magenta, and the, the kernel's MIT licensed. Um, and so this has been around for quite a while, but it's caused a bit of a stir in the last week because of a, a demo that has surfaced with a UI called Armadillo, which you can actually run on Android, and it's it's not complete at all, is it? I mean, it's it's basically a skeleton of a UI at this stage, but it does show that Google have not forgotten about Fuchsia. Google are still working on it and it's going to be open source but it's going to be that different kind of open source isn't it than linux it's going to be the uh permissively licensed open source which is better for well it's it's an easier sell isn't it for for big business it's corporate empire friendly and uh when you look at this it's really a landing spot for some of their favorite projects dart is in on this thing uh, to give you high performance graphics they have vulcan for the rendering Uh, they have escher which is volumetric soft shadows for some of their ui stuff this is high-end gooey stuff it's like their fantasy project stuff now all of this is neat and interesting and with Google some of this stuff could go nowhere They're, they often launch products that compete with each other like for years the conversation is will Android and Chrome merge because they seem to be competing that's not unusual for Google when you look at Project Treble and consider Fuchsia it could be that Treble would allow them to abstract away the hardware stuff abstract away the hardware drivers and move over to Fuchsia without a whole bunch of device problems so at least Google's own devices like the Pixel maybe a Nexus device could run Fuchsia But what about the problem of applications? I mean, that's always been the problem with new Linux-based operating systems, right, for the mobile. They they don't have that wealth of apps. I mean, the millions and millions or a billion apps or whatever it is available for Android, they're going to have to either convince everyone to rewrite their app to work with Fuchsia, or they're going to have to write some sort of compatibility layer. I hope it's the I hope it's the first one. I hope people have, So do I. You know what? Wouldn't that be great if Android apps were all of a sudden 120 frames per second and just flying around and had great graphics and just loaded really smooth? I mean we have and didn't crash all the time. <laughs> right. I mean we have supercomputers in these phones, at least compared to when I was growing up and now looking at these devices. I don't understand why they're so slow. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So fuchsia, I, it feels like one of these fascinating skunk works projects, but we don't, we don't really, at least I won't speak for you, Joe, but I don't really have any expectations. It's going to go anywhere. I do. I, I do think it is going to go somewhere because that's how Google does things. They always hedge their bets, don't they? They, they will yeah. never just have one product for things yeah. Yeah. or very, very seldom. Yeah. And eventually one will win out and they'll kill the other one. But I mean, just look at their messaging fiasco at the moment. Oh, How geez. many ways have you got to send someone a message through Google? Oh, you're getting me worked up right now just thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah. Allo, you have Allo, Duo, Hangouts, of course. Google, I mean, there's so many. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Google Doc Chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe something will be announced next week or this week, May 17th. Maybe something will be announced at Google I.O. Keynote. They'll just be unbelievable. I don't really expect that you and I are going to talk a lot about mobile and Android on this show. If this is go figure as we're launching the show this is the big news right now so we're talking about it now but i don't know joe i think down the road you and i probably won't be talking about it much that's my that's my instinct i could be totally wrong and of course this is going to be the week that'll prove me wrong i don't know man i have to disagree with that the way i see it the the desktop okay it's never going to go away of course you're always going to have people using it on the desktop be it windows mac os or linux hopefully but we have seen the growth of mobile and it's not going away. And hopefully Linux is going to continue to be a big part of that. But I think that while people are primarily using Android devices or mobile devices, at least, we've got to talk about that. We can't ignore the reality that um, desktop Linux, like desktop computing generally, is on the wane. It hurts, but I think you're right. I have more and more people in my personal life that when they go home, they don't have a computer. They just use their mobile device. Well, you're talking to one of them now, Chris, I'm afraid. What? You know, I have, yeah, seriously. Okay, I have my desktop, I have a ton of laptops, but my primary device is my Android phone running Lineage mm. OS because it's always with me. You want to know something funny? My, my middle child, uh, Abigail, t- this weekend said to us, how come you guys don't have to pay for your home? And, and we said, what do you mean? We pay for our home. Well, no, no. When my mommy pays for home, she uses her computer, but you don't have a computer here, so you don't pay for your home. And <laughs> we said, oh, no, trust us. We pay. We just don't use a computer to do it. And that's when I realized, yeah, most, most of the time when I'm at home, there's not even – there might be a laptop in a bag somewhere, but there's no computer set up at home anymore on a, on, when I'm at home and I'm not working anymore because I have I – have, connectivity on my television. I have my phone. I have tablets. So Joe, while I want to sit here and disagree with you, the reality, even in my own home, would say otherwise. Yep, exactly. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts on anything we talked about or that particular subject. You can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact to send us in your feedback or just email us directly, news at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or you can tweet us at linuxactionnews.com with stories or feedback. Yeah, and also the new Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group. Bit.ly slash JB Telegram. Bit.ly slash JB Telegram. We just launched it. We're only telling you guys. It's a Linux Action News secret. Bit.ly slash JB Telegram. If you want to get on the official Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group, and there is something you can do to help the show out. Subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you or even just a few of you do it this week, it'll help with discovery because the way it works is they got these crazy Python scripts. When you subscribe, the numbers count up, boop, 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 and even 10, 30, 40 of you do it, and we'll move way up in the charts and people will find this new show. You can actually help us out this week by subscribing. We have links to all of them, all of the subscription services at linuxactionnews.com. Maybe not all of them, but pretty close. 
And you know what, Chris? The dirty secret of a lot of our listeners is that they use iTunes. <gasps> what? Yeah, and you know, even if even if you don't want to admit it, we won't tell anybody. But there is another dirty secret. You are our potential white knights. We need them here at the Linux Action News, of course. You can save us by reviewing or rating in iTunes. You actually don't only juice iTunes for us, but you juice like a dozen other podcast directories who all just scrape iTunes. That's why iTunes is the boss. Is many, many podcast players, websites, and apps are actually just scraping iTunes. And if you rate and review in there, you could help us out a bunch. And not a lot of you want to even admit to using iTunes. So if, it's, if you're one of them, please consider doing it. Right then, I suppose that'll do it for this episode. So we'll see you again next Monday. Be sure to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all of our feed links. And thanks for joining us, guys. See you later. Bye.